welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Arbitral Insight. I'm Clément Fouchard, partner in Rismith's Paris office in energy and natural resources. And today I'm very pleased to welcome Paco Ziegler. Hello, Paco. Hi, Clément. Thanks very much for having me today. Well, my pleasure. Paco, you are a French and Portuguese qualified lawyer. You are founding partner of De La Loa, an arbitration boutique based in Lisbon, with a particular focus on Portuguese-speaking countries. And prior to founding De La Loa, you worked at Decat uh, in Paris at, and at uh, PLMG Advocados in Lisbon. So today we will be discussing international arbitration and Portuguese-speaking Africa. And before we kick off, it's probably useful to start with a rundown of Portuguese-speaking countries in Africa. So we start by mentioning Angola, Cabo Verde, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Sao Tome and Principe. So that we have the, the scene set. Back home, my first question for you. Your practice focuses on Portuguese-speaking countries, and I understand that you are particularly active in Portuguese-speaking Africa countries. Any recent interesting developments regarding international arbitration in these parts of the world? Well, yes, yes, there, there indeed are uh, interesting developments there. And if I may, I will start with uh, Angola. Angola has been facing a severe uh, economic downturns recently uh, over the last couple of years. And, and in this context, the government has been keen to try and attract uh, more foreign direct investment. And as part of this drive, they've been making recently quite a few changes to their legislation just to try and create a more favorable environment for FDI in Angola. So, for instance, they've enacted a new foreign investment law in April 2021. They've made changes to foreign exchange regulations, aiming essentially at cutting red tape for or at least outsource the approval of foreign invisible transactions to commercial banks something which previously was done by the, by the central bank itself. So it was very, very cumbersome. And this, all that occurred between August 2020 and December 2021. So that's very recent. Uh, on the arbitration front, there's also been a push towards making Angola more arbitration friendly, I would say. They've been, Angola has ratified, for instance, its investment treaty uh, with Portugal, which it signed in 2008. So... They ratified that in 2020, so 12 years after signing it. And of course, last but not least, uh, on 1st of September 2021, the um, Angolan parliament has approved Angola's accession to the ICSID convention. So I would expect Angola to soon uh, deposit its, its instrument of ratification or acceptance and thereafter becoming then a member state of the ICSID convention. Okay, and then do you expect the entry into force of the exit convention vis-à-vis -vis Angola to imply a sort of a boom in investment arbitration against the state or involving Angolan nationals? 
Well, I mean, the ratification of the ICSID Convention is, is, I mean, they're, they're certainly sending a signal there to, to the market in general and, and to foreign investors in particular uh, to the effect that they're, um, they're open for, uh, for business, uh, so to say. But still, I think the impact of that is likely to be limited, uh, at least in the short to uh, medium term. There's a couple of reasons for that. First, the trend in inbound uh, foreign direct investment in Angola is, uh, is unfortunately negative. It's, uh, it's, go, I mean, it's a divestment uh, trend. The balance of inbound FDI is indeed negative since 2016, uh, which means that foreign investors are basically divesting, especially in the oil sector. So, um, and in this context, it, I'm not sure there will be an increasing number of, of, of actions initiated against the state, but it may soon change because, uh, as we know, um, oil prices are going higher and, and the, uh, the Angolan economy is highly dependent on oil revenues. They represent 80% of the, of the national uh, GDP and 90% of foreign direct investment inflows in 2021. So let's see you know, what, what happens there. The second, I think, reason why I, I, I don't think we're going to see any boom in arbitration in Angola or involving Angolan national is, is because Angola has only a limited number of uh, BITs in force. They have six, to be, um, to be precise, one with Germany, Italy, Russia, Portugal, Brazil, and Cabo Verde. And none of these con- countries is, is a major source of uh, foreign direct investment. There was no uh, inbound foreign direct investment from Russia or Cabo Verde in, over the last few years. And the FDI stock from Brazil and Italy is, is also quite insignificant. I mean, th- there, is, there are some flows coming from Germany and Portugal, but nothing very significant either, at least according to um, the national statistics from the investment agency. On the upside of that is... All of these BITs, which are currently in force in Angola, provide, do provide for ICSID as a venue for, uh, for investment arbitration, except uh, for the Brazil-Angola BIT, which, which actually does not provide for investment arbitration at all and instead refers uh, investment disputes to local courts. Uh, on a side note, you know, this is kind of unsurprising as we know that Brazil's is, um, I mean, general stance towards uh, IDS is I mean, it's pretty much against ISDS in, in general. So, I mean, based on these currents, uh, currently enforced BITs, uh, I, mean, I mean, it's unlikely that they, they, they are going to generate a significant number of exit arbitrations just because there, there, are, there aren't enough of them. Another factor yet is, uh, is future BITs. And there, what's interesting is, is Angola has actually a model BIT, which it prepared in 2014 and amongst... Uh, many oddities of that uh, BIT model or uh, an orthodox BIT, I would say. Well, it, it provides that investment dispute between investors and states must be settled before local courts. And, and I understand this uh, model BIT was actually the basis for the discussions between Brazil and, and Angola. And, and as I just told you, well, this BIT doesn't have an investor state arbitration clause. So let's see here again how, you know, how things um, evolve. If Angola is going to draft a new uh, model BIT, which would be more, which would actually contain a, a, an investor state dispute resolution clause. Last, I mean, this, this, uh, the, the lack of, of BITs could be, could be remedied or, uh, by the national Angolan investment law. And, and there is a national investment law, which I, as I said, was enacted in 2021. And, and this law does allow for arbitration, but it does not specify the venue. 
there's another law which is relevant here, which is the, the law governing uh, petroleum activities, which is which is key, as I said, because 90% of of FDI is is coming from the oil sector, and and this this law provides for arbitration, but it's arbitration sitting in Angola, subject to Angolan law and conducted in Portuguese, and and the way this uh, law is drafted actually it's, it suggests that the clause is mandatory, d'ordre public, so you, you cannot basically contract out of it. So you know just to in conclusion, this would have to change in order for Angola's accession to exceed to uh, translate into more. Uh, exit arbitrations involving Angola or Angolan nationals. Thank you. And so you mentioned this remedy before, I mean, under local arbitration law, when uh, you have, for instance, a dispute arising out of petroleum activities conducted in Angola. How does it work? Can you say a few, a few comments on, on, on that? Yes, of course, I, I have personal experience arbitrating under the Angolan arbitration law, and I can tell you firsthand that, that it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. I mean, the, the law is based on the, the ancestral model law, but in reality, it significantly departs from it. There's you know, particularly one very, I would say, dangerous provision, which is that the, the tribunal has, is, is bound to reach a decision within six months of its constitution, and there's a, a possibility to extend that deadline, but uh, in order for that deadline to be extended, you need the agreement of all parties. So obviously, if uh, one of the parties does not want to uh, participate in the arbitration, then it can just easily sabotage it by refusing to consent to an extension. So that's a big issue, and, and one of the one of the reasons why, when I am asked by investors if if uh, you know they have a a clause providing for arbitration under um, Angolan uh, arbitration law. If you know if if they can go there, I you know the, the answer is is usually no, don't go there. And and there's also another issue which is not based, uh, which does not derive from the the arbitration law, but from the law governing advocacy. So what uh, lawyers can do in Angola, and as is some yeah, somehow frequent in 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 some countries, is foreign lawyers. I mean, it's a crime for foreign lawyers to represent clients in Angola. And there's no carve-out for, uh, for uh, arbitration proceedings. So, uh, so you know, anytime you have uh, an arbitration seat in Angola or, in, or even so when, when the, the hearing or any, yeah, any hearing is, is, has to be uh, held in Angola, then, then being a foreign lawyer, it's extremely um, worrisome and, and have, have actually been threatened with criminal proceedings because I was representing a client in a in a in a Rwanda seated arbitration, so you know that's tricky. Wow, <laughs> indeed. I mean, these two these two points alone uh, are, are telling. I mean, uh, and uh, I find it quite also quite interesting to note that the law you're just referring to uh, dated only from 2011, which is not that old, but clearly uh, it's not in line with the international sort of standards we see. Do you know if there's any plan to revise the law? Yes, I mean, back in 2015, there was um, the Ministry of Justice, the Angolan Ministry of Justice, created a working group and tasked it with, uh, you know, has to come up with proposals to uh, revise that law. Because I think they knew there, there were shortcomings there and, and there was, you know, they hadn't seen any significant increase in, in arbitration in Angola. And so they did set up this working group, which came up with a string of recommendations uh, shortly thereafter, still in 2015. So that's already seven years ago. And I mean, these recommendations are 
um, more or less useful because they, they did identify the issue with the, the timeline for rendering the award. But what they suggested, what they suggest is to only extend, you know, this uh, six-month deadline for the tribunal to render the, its award. But they did not seem to um, identify the issue of of you know this requirement that all parties consent to extending the deadline in order for that extension to be possible. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's uh, it's headed in the right direction, at least based on this report. But in any case, these recommendations, I mean, to date, and as far as I know, uh, they haven't been acted upon yet. So we're still. We're still where we were in uh, 2011 when that law was enacted. Thank you, Pakum. So we have discussed a few recent developments in Angola. Any other developments in the region? Yes. I mean, as you know, there's there's a massive uh, liquefied natural gas project going on in in northern Mozambique in the Romuva Basin. So if you don't mind, we could talk about that. So maybe I can give you a, a little bit of background there. So uh, in t- back in 2006, the government signed two exploration and production concessions for uh, two offshore blocks located in the Romuva Basin in northern Mozambique. These two blocks, just to uh, put things into context, are right next to one another. There's two areas, Area 1 and, and Area 4, and Area 1 is closer to the shore. Area 4 is, is a bit farther offshore. Uh, but these blocks, in any case, are very far uh, to the north of Maputo. It's about, about 1,000 miles um, to the north. It's right next to the border with Tanzania. After three years of exploration, they found a vast quantity of natural gas there, uh, both in Area 1 and Area 4. Estimates of the quantity of gas there have been are said to be in the region of 100 trillion cubic feet of proved natural gas and even more natural gas resources. So... If these resources are all put uh, into commercial production, Mozambique could soon become the world's fourth largest uh, natural gas producer and exporter on the planet. So it's a, it's a very, very significant find. Oh, I see. Thank you. And, and then who holds the concessions and, and what are the, the plans? The, so as I told you, there, there are two areas uh, in this basin. Um, area one, um, the concession there is held by a consortium currently led by Total Energies, so a French French company uh, who is also acting as primary operator. Total Energies bought uh, this asset from Occidental in May 2019, and right after Occidental actually acquired the asset from Anadarko. So it was kind of a complex deal, uh, which made the headlines at the time. The area for concession is held by the Mozambique Remover Venture. Uh, it's a joint venture of ExxonMobil, NI, and China National Petroleum Corporation. ExxonMobil is uh, poised to lead the construction and operation of onshore facilities and related liquefaction plants, uh, whilst NI uh, will lead upstream developments and uh, operations. What are the plans? Well, in both areas, both uh, operators are planning on constructing huge onshore liquefaction plants and related facilities. Total Energy's project is uh, is said to represent an investment of 20 billion USD. The final investment decision was reached in June 2019, so soon after they uh, actually acquired the asset and construction started soon after. And at the time when they uh, started started construction, the uh, expected uh, timeline for completion was, uh, and actually for for the the gas to come, for the plants to come into production was 2024. 
it's currently the largest ongoing private investment in Africa. Just so, so you know, so we have uh, an idea of how big this is. ExxonMobil's plan, in turn, uh, also include the construction of two liquefaction trains or uh, plants and all related fa- uh, facilities, a jetty, an airstrip. You know, it's it's again, it's it's massive, and the investment is, is said to be in the region of thirty billion USD. There, however, in contrast to uh, Total Energy's uh, plans, uh, no investment decision has been reached yet, uh, at least as far as I know, uh, based on press reports. And I also understand from press report that this uh, final investment decision uh, by ExxonMobil has been uh, postponed several times. That's where we are, as I understand from press reports. And do we know why ExxonMobil has been postponing its investment decision? Well, I will base myself here on, on press reports uh, because I have no, you know, I'm not privy to, um, to, to, this, uh, to this project. And according to press reports, there could be a conjunction of factors behind this uh, decision by ExxonMobil and, and its consortium. So the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is, is one of these reasons. But uh, the, the press also reports pressure from shareholders to, um, for uh, ExxonMobil to reduce its carbon footprint in a Reuters article published on 4 November 2021, Liam Malone, uh, who's uh, ExxonMobil's president of X- Upstream Oil and Gas, he said that he wanted to reduce costs, uh, to green its, its investment by, uh, by capturing carbon dioxide. And what uh, Liam Malone also says in that article is that one of the things that are, that are holding them back is the jihadist insurgency that is ravaging the concession areas since 2017. And this uh, insurgency, uh, jihadist insurgency, that has been reported uh, in, the, in the press, I guess that also impacts uh, Total Energy's plan, right? Yes, yes, of course. And as you know, in March 2021, the insurgency uh, took over a couple of, of towns around the, uh, the uh, Area 1 concession. And this led, according to press reports again, uh, Total Energies to declare force majeure in April 2021 and its, uh, withdraw its personnel from the construction site. Since then, I understand that Mozambique has enlisted the help of the Rwandan military and, and other militaries to uh, try and stabilize the situation. I understand that the situation has, has, has stabilized a little bit, but still very volatile. And I understand that the total energy construction site is uh, under protection from, uh, is still under protection from the Rwandan military. In September last year, um, Total Energy CEO said that he, uh, he was planning to resume operations constructions uh, in 2026. But in February this year, again in the press, Total Energy CEO said that, well, operation uh, construction would not resume until after all displaced people are back uh, into their homes and the such situation has stabilized. I see. Thank you for, for this very clear explanation. And, and so then the next, next question would be for probably that, what are the, the implications of the current situation? Well, as, as you can imagine, the stakes are, are, are high there, both for uh, Mozambique and, and Total Energies. To start, starting with Mozambique, Mozambique was expecting a, a lot of royalties from, uh, from this project. And, and I understand that they had timed the maturity of the debts based on the timing of the project so that you know they could service the debt with with the royalty so all that is now um, put into question and of course total energy is also is, is in a difficult situation 
we know from the information they they published on their own website that they um, you know this this project has been financed primarily through debt fin- uh, project finance and they have uh, they said to have eight uh, eight loans from credit uh, export credit ag- agencies 19 commercial bank facilities and a loan from the African Development Bank so they they are of, of course keen uh, to avoid a default under these contracts and and totally energy has also to deal with uh, its subcontractors, uh, in particular its engineering, procurement and construction contractor, which is a consortium led by Saipem. It's also a massive contract, six billion. And, and of course, you know, they, uh, they, they try to avoid any, any, any issue there. Um, and of course, there are, there are also dozens of local subcontractors. Although the press, I mean, I, I saw nothing in the press about that, but I, I assume that Total Energy has declared force majeure in all these contracts as well. If I may say some some things on, on the concession agreement of Total Energies, which has been made available by the Mozambican Petroleum Agency's website, and, and I understand and this is the official version that is published in Portuguese, and it's interesting there to see that um, they, they do have a force majeure clause, as you would expect, and this clause provides as follows, and I would translate from Portuguese, it says... It defines force majeure as any cause or event outside of the reasonable control of the party uh, that alleges having been affected by this event and not attributable to that party. Thank you, Paco. Man. It's quite useful to have the concession agreement make being uh, publicly available. And on, on that, do, do you think we, we need to take into account also uh, Mozambique law uh, in relation to the force majeure? Or what, are, what are the other sort of comments you can make here? Yes, well, uh, the force majeure is defined in the contract, so that would uh, per se avoid the need to um, rely on, on Mozambican uh, statutory law, namely the, the civil code, which would be applicable in this case. And the force majeure clause is, is useful here, and, and the uh, insurgency qualifies as a, as a force majeure event without any doubt. I think it's, it's a good thing that there's, there's this clause in the contract because the, the, notion, the notion of force majeure does not exist in Mozambican law. And is there any equivalent or concept? There is a, an equivalent sort of concept in, in, in Mozambican uh, civil law, in, the, in civil code. It's the concept of impossibility uh, of performance. But the concept is, is slightly different, at least, I mean, one of the requirements for impossibility to arise is, is that the, the impossibility of performance is permanent. And this is, this is assessed based on the interests of the uh, obligee. Uh, to put it differently, the obliger, under this concept of impossibility, the obliger is not excused from performing if impossibility is simply temporary. And it will be deemed temporary if the, obli- if the obligee retains an interest in the performance of the obli- obligation by the obliger. So if, you know, assuming that if, if there was a contract there uh, where this notion of impossibility applied, then perhaps it would be more difficult for total energy to excuse itself from from performing because because you know it might be said that impossibility remains temporary because the other party would uh, would still retain an interest in the performance of its obligations by by total energies well f- thank you very much pacom i mean we are uh, we could uh, go on i think for for even uh, longer on on those uh, very interesting topics and developments in uh, Portuguese-speaking countries in Africa. Thanks again. And um, I uh, will be happy to uh, see all you uh, in the next episode of Arbitrary Site.
Thank you very much again, Clément, for the invitation, and, and I and I look forward to the next uh, opportunity to um, to participate to, um, in this podcast. Thank you very much. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.